Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? The trouble varies a bit, right? Yeah. And uh, we we create trouble because we challenge uh, the status quo on a regular basis. And we have serious issues with the status quo. We don't find society fairly organised. We don't approve of the militarisation of Europe or the planet. And um, we obviously, when it comes to foreign policy, which we're going to speak about this week... Um, we have no problem in challenging the US narrative, which unfortunately uh, the likes of RTE at home have a problem with. And I suppose that w- we can discuss that. Yeah. But then obviously trouble then comes in. We, we create our own trouble by challenging uh, narratives which uh, we find false. Yeah. We, we, then we, we find ourselves in trouble because the mainstream media uh, attack us because we're not... Uh, fallen into line. So, well, they also caricature the positions we take. They don't even engage in honest debate on the issues, which if they did, it would be something. But, you know, you're right. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I'm, and I mean, we're ruffling feathers somewhere, clearly. And it, yeah, that I makes mean, us look very happy. The two shows run by RT this week, uh, I believe, I mean, I, I, uh, I didn't listen to them. My life is a bit too short for that. But from the people that did listen to them, what they were saying, I mean, first of all, they were completely 100% one sided. Secondly, we weren't asked on the shows, right? Asking us for a comment in advance, which they use, which they would use against us, is not asking us on the show. Getting us, allowing us to go on the show and have our say live, is something that uh, we have no problem with. Mm. But allowing these fellas to censor what we say, that's not really. Attractive. And we weren't even contacted. I wasn't in contact at all in advance of the second program at all. Yeah, we well, got I mean, a text it, message asking us for a comment. We didn't even know there was a program on about the first one. Whereas uh, hmm. the, the 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 chair of the Security and Defence Committee uh, well, was obviously on the day before. Let's, let's hold back there. Some there's people listening probably who haven't heard what happened Sorry, in the yeah, said the committee yeah, last yeah. week. So this okay. is the Security and Defence Committee. Um, we'll play a little bit of the exchange. So you heard Mick um, asking a question to the director of the OPCW, uh, which is the Fernando Organization of, of Prevention, Prevention of Chemical, of chemical Weapons, weapons yep. OPCW. Um, and this man was there to answer questions to the committee. Um, and Mick was making an intervention to ask a specific question. And the chair basically shut him down, apologised uh, for his remarks. And yeah, let's have a listen so people can hear firsthand. In March 2019, the OPCW put out a report on the alleged chemical attack uh, in Douma, alleging Syrian guilt. 
But a series of leaks emerged from inside the OPCW, showing that the inspectors on the ground reached a very different conclusion. The so-called chemical attack, which the US, France and UK used as an excuse to bomb Syria, most likely was staged with the help of the White Helmets, a UK-US paid propaganda entity. We need clarity, we need the truth. As Julian Assange says, if wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by the truth. You are aware from the leaks now in the public domain that in June 18, a month before you became Director General, the original team report on the Duma incident found that there was no evidence of a chemical attack. But this was switched to a highly doctored version that made unsupported claims of that chemical attack. Has the Director General ever investigated this act of grave deceit that occurred before you headed the OPCW? And if so, what was the outcome? On top of the doctoring and censorship of the original report, there were other well-documented scientific and procedural irregularities. This includes the expert opinions from toxicologists who ruled out chlorine as the cause of deaths of the victims, yet their opinion was suppressed in the final report. Do you agree that this was fraudulent? Have you taken measures to investigate such irregular behaviour? Director General, the credibility of the OPCW is at stake. Why will you not heed calls from renowned international figures, including the organization's first Director General, Jose Bostani, and several former team leaders from the OPCW to meet with all the investigators, including the dissenting inspectors. Director General, this problem is not going away. Are you going to investigate all aspects in a transparent manner? I cannot accept that you can call into question the work of an international organization and that you call into the question the word of the victims in the way you have just done. And I would, uh, ask you, Director-General, to please uh, forgive uh, what we just heard, which uh, seems to me to be fake news. I give you the floor. President, why am I the only one that was interfered with here? Is there no freedom of speech being allowed in the European Parliament anymore? So after that, um, you saw that yesterday there was some coverage as well in Irish media about this exchange. Um, that's what you're talking about here, bit. Uh, no, well, I mean, th this, this was actually yeah. an outrageous conduct by yeah. the chair of that committee that we have subsequently complained about. Uh, the job of a chair is to ensure that members' voices are heard. Um, and what we were doing, and Mick's going to go into it maybe in a bit of detail now, but the... This is a hugely important international organisation that's supposed to have the confidence of all countries around the world to say that they independently assess allegations of the use of chemical weapons, which we are obviously vehemently opposed to and we'd like to see the end to. But sadly, the OPCW is embroiled in controversy at the moment. We didn't cause that, but we were simply echoing and articulating the concerns from within that organisation of whistleblowers who had been involved in the initial inspection uh, of the alleged chemical attack in Douma in Syria in 2018 and the people who went in on the ground as part of that independent um, investigation uh, adjudicated that there were no chemical weapons used but their report was subsequently manipulated and all we were trying to do was raise some of the questions they had and obviously the chair 
didn't want to hear uh, the answers, which is bang out of order on, yeah. on her part. Like, And some of the, the accusations uh, yesterday and also in other media is about uh, connecting this to s- something such as Holocaust denying or calling you Russian stooges or this kind of thing. Um, there's clearly um, a willingness from others to try and stamp out these questions. But what what are you saying? What is the question? And are you taking a position on what happened in Duma or are you just asking a question? What we want is we want the concerns of dissenters and whistleblowers addressed. We want we we were asking uh, the the director general of OPCW, Arias, we were asking him to meet the, 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 the scientists who are complaining because what happened was, OK, I mean, a led, the Ladybird version is that in March 19, uh, the OPCW put out a report uh, on the alleged chemical weapons attack in Duma. Uh, but, and it followed the line of the US, France, UK alleging Syrian guilt and accusing the Syrians of dropping chemical weapons. Now, I'm not, we're not saying that Syria never dropped chemical weapons, but we're asking questions about what happened in Douma, right? And, but what happened? See, a series of leaks emerged from inside OPCW after this report coming out in March 19, and it showed that the inspectors on the ground reached a completely different conclusion. The, the, the alleged incident happened in April 18, and the inspectors on the ground did a report which was ready in June 18, right? Uh, so, but when the, when the official OPCW report came out in March 19, it bore no resemblance to what the inspectors found on the ground because they didn't find evidence of a chemical attack. Mm. Now, I mean, look at us, we want the truth. And we're not saying that uh, we know everything about this, but listen, for God's sake, we think the OPCW is a very important organisation. We think its credibility should be protected. It will not be protected if there's a cover-up. It will not be, its credibility will not be protected if questions are not answered. If the scientists on the ground have a problem with the report that was eventually put out in March 2019, then let's address the concerns. But in actual fact, Arias, the Director General, does not talk about it. Which is kind of worrying that he wouldn't uh, just address the concerns. They were that simple. Exactly. But also, um, like people, I think there's a big campaign though to make this look like it's a big tinfoil hat thing, and people being absolutely mad and saying this just to try and disturb uh, the status quo and be all pro Assad. They just they're trying to say all this basically. But what you're saying there is very high up uh, on the ground scientists are dissenting and there were some serious controversies from within the OPCW and serious leaks. So this is quite well, a big we, we concern. We have been dealing no? with some yeah. of those inspectors who were the ones who went in on the ground. And, you know, not only did he not answer the questions, but he spoke for 35 minutes when he was only given a 10 minute slot on the agenda of the security and defence to answer questions. He spoke for 35 minutes and patently ignored the questions that Mick asked. When I tried to ask them again, the chair wouldn't even allow me in. I had to fight for the right to ask the question again. Uh, and again, he didn't uh, answer those points. But the reason why it's so important is, is that the 
alleged chemical attack on Douma was the justification for the US, the UK and France to then bomb uh, key targets in Syria after that. It was sort of seen as a red line. And if, as would appear to be the case, there wasn't evidence of that attack in the first place, well, then it puts their subsequent actions under scrutiny. So it is really serious, um, yeah. this whole issue. And listen, and just, OK, we, we don't want to bombard people with too much information because we have just had this coming out in our ears for the last uh, while. And it's only lately that we've kind of brought up. This has actually been going on for several months now, right? And to give credit where it's due... There's probably no one has done as much on the research as Aaron Maté, who works with the Grey Zone. Phenomenal. I mean, his his research is scientific. It is, and he he's not thrown around careless accusations, right? This guy is a real serious journalist, and sadly, unlike uh, the likes of the fellas working for Drive Time. Hmm. Uh, but this guy is doing his homework, right? And I'd, I'd like to just give a, just a, a bit of a background as to what Aaron has put into the public domain, right? And Aaron spoke at the UN on Friday, as did others, right? Uh, Hans van uh, Spanjek and Lawrence Wilkinson, who we, we, I'd, I'd like to talk about later, also spoke at the UN, right? But when Aaron spoke at the UN last Friday, uh, he, he went back to the start and he talked about the fact that it was April the 7th, 2018, when there was a terrible atrocity in Douma. Dead bodies were filmed inside of a building. And the US, Britain and France, a few days later, bombed Syria, accusing it of committing a chemical attack in Douma. So we had the US, France and UK using this alleged attack before any evidence was gathered or garnered. They used it as an attack to illegally bomb. It was, Syria. I think, two days after. A couple of days it? later, and yeah. it was based on a, a video. So yeah, I mean, there was, had the, 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 there wasn't even time for the research and or the investigation to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, in other words, right, and then just after that, after the, the the Americans and the British and the French had bombed it, right, the OPCW got a team on the ground for the first time. Uh, and sent a fact a fact finding mission, right? And uh, uh, and they said to to Duma, right? About a year later, in March nineteen, a final report came out, and that report claims that there are reasonable grounds to believe that a chlorine attack occurred in Duma. And the the the, the allegation of the report is that Syria was guilty, so it aligns with the narrative that was put out by the countries that bombed Syria. But then we get a pretty extraordinary series of leaks that exposed a major deception. And those leaks show that the actual inspectors who went to Duma did not reach the conclusion that was put out by the OPCW. And they actually found that there was no evidence of a chemical attack in Duma. They did not speculate as to what actually happened. But what they said is that there is no evidence of a chemical attack. We saw that because one of the leaks we got was the original report from the Duma team. They wrote a report that was never released to the public until it was leaked. Now, that report was peer-reviewed by the team. It was set up for publication. It was, 
But then something strange happened. The author of the original report, the chief author, who's been identified by the OPCW as Inspector B, he discovered that someone above him had actually been trying to rush out a bogus report, taking the original report, removing all the key scientific findings and adding unsupported conclusions, including speculating that chlorine gas was likely used and falsely claiming that there were high concentrations of that chemical. So Inspector B thwarted the publication of this bogus report because he sent an email of protest that was sent out to all of the Duma team members and some officials that led to the publication of the interim report in early July 18. The interim report removed the bogus claims of the doctored bogus report, but it also removed some of the key claims of the original report. So a sort of a compromise. And around that time, something else very strangely happened. The US delegation visited the Duma team and tried to lobby them into reaching the conclusion that there was a chlorine attack. Now, look, it's probably normal enough for state parties to share information and share views uh, and intelligence, but uh, a one-on-one briefing in which the inspectors who are supposed to be protected could fa- comes face-to-face with the US delegation is not normal. The first Director General of the OPCW, Jose Bustani, Uh, who has actually been very vocal on all this lately, Uh, he said that, that, that he would never have allowed such a meeting to take place. Something else happened around then too. The original team, including Inspector B, who was the chief author of the original report, they are all sidelined. They're taken off to do an investigation and they're replaced by a so-called core team. And this is comprised mostly of people who never set foot in Syria. And that is the team that produced the final report. So then we get these leaks showing all this happening. And then what happens? Well, the OPCW refuses to meet with the inspectors. They refuse to investigate the doctoring of the original report. And when Bustani, the first director general of the OPCW, when he tried to speak at the UN Security Council, when he, uh, he was indicted, certain members, certain member states blocked him from speaking. I mean... If, if, why would you block someone from speaking like? What's interesting about that is Bostani, being the first director general, helped design the protocols used for inspections, missions, inspection missions like Duma. He also worked with the key dissenting inspectors because these two inspectors, they're so experienced at the OBCW that their tenure coincides with, with, with his time, which is, it was nearly 50, or three, uh, when Bustani was actually removed. And in actual fact, it's interesting that Bustani was forced out as leader of OPCW in 03 because he was claiming that there was no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and the Americans hadn't moved. And people might find it interesting that John Bolton, who was working for the U.S. administration at the time, went to see Bustani and he told him that he knew where his children lived. And shortly afterwards, the U.S. said they would withdraw all funding to the OPCW unless Bustani was removed and he was removed. So, I mean, it's pretty scary stuff, right? Well, he won his case afterwards, uh, yeah. we should say, as well, and, yeah. and donated all the money back to the OPCW, such as his commitment to the need for an independent body. Yeah, I mean, look at... Um, but I think that, like, that's a lot of information to, for know, the Irish I listener, but I think what the main thing, though, to pull from all that is, um, in reality, no one is denying anything right now outright. They're just asking some serious questions because of some very high-level 
uh, leaks and the questions need to be well, no, answered. Well, well, you know, no, so. the reality is is that the current Director General of the OPCW was before the Security and Defence Committee of the European Parliament and was questioned about this report, which, as Mick has highlighted, those questions have come from within the organisation and from the people who were on the ground in Syria from that organisation. And we were merely articulating those concerns. And rather than him answering the points that we made made to him, he started talking about other reports that were done before even the Juma attack, which had absolutely nothing got to do with this case. He didn't deal with the issue of would he meet the people there. And rather than the chair protecting the rights of elected members of the European Parliament to do our job and scrutinise these bodies, she shut us down and accused us of fake news. And as we made the point in our letter of complaint to the Parliament about her, we a bit of a record in Ireland about championing the cause of whistleblowers. Our job with Mar- work in the Irish Parliament with uh, Garda whistleblower Morris McCabe led to the resignation of two inspectors and two ministers for uh, justice. But even in that campaign, we were never accused of fake news, even though we know the slanders that whistleblowers go through. And there seems to be repeating itself with the OPCW. So there are really uh, important issues here about the rights of members. Yeah, I mean, and, and Aaron Mate makes the point that he says, uh, this is, you know, it, it's actually about protecting the integrity of the OPCW. It's about protecting international law and of the word of governments to claim that we have to bomb countries based on allegations. I mean, this is really dangerous. Like, the victims in Duma do deserve justice, and you, you cannot claim to care about the victims in Duma if you're supporting the censorship of the investigation into the deaths. And sadly, that's exactly what Drive Time did yesterday Even They are supporting so, the censorship. And this, just my last point on it, right? One of the chief inspectors, right, of this initial investigation in Duma was an Irishman called Dr. Brendan Whelan, right? Dr. Brendan Whelan has been treated really badly by the OPCW because of the evidence that he produced from his inspections, right? Now, this is a nourishman, right? So, drive time, instead of bringing on a nourishman, Dr. Brendan Whelan, to give his side of the story, they bring on a former French minister, Madame Loiseau, who's the chair of the Security and Defence Committee that we've been talking about, she was a, a member of the French government in 2018 that bombed illegally Syria in response to this alleged attack. So instead of bringing on the Irishman, Brendan Whelan, they bring on this one that was part of the French government that engaged in the illegal bombing. I mean, RTE should be ashamed of themselves. It's also the case that, you know, from really seriously... Uh, accredited international people, including scientists and renowned peacekeepers, have signed letters to the OPCW asking for a proper scientific investigation in the OPCW scientific advisory body of the claims that so we could have these issues answered transparently once and for all. And the fact that that isn't being done actually tells its own story because if there's nothing to hide, why are they afraid of the questions? But RTE didn't even ask the questions. And I mean, when you think about it, even separate to this issue, which is vitally important, I mean, this woman, Natalie Loiseau, is actually known to be a serial crank. Um, She had to resign 
uh, as the top, she was the top candidate from Macron uh, in the European Parliament elections and she was the tipped candidate to be the leader of the Renew group in the European Parliament because she had Macron's basking and because they were the biggest group in that delegation. But so confident was she that she organised an impromptu briefing, a so-called off-the-record briefing with French journalists and basically in the most vicious way slagged off and insulted about six or seven MEPs, including Guy Verhofstadt, Manfred Weber, Sophie Infeld, and she had to resign. So here we have a serial crank, known for slagging off MEPs, been brought on to the Irish National Broadcaster on a programme as an authority to make allegations against democratically elected Irish MEPs who weren't told anything about that. I didn't know anything about that programme at all until after it. Mick's office got an email in the afternoon of uh, of the day of the meeting, uh, asking him for a comment, a pre-recorded comment, uh, saying that the programme was being done. They'd already talked to this Natalie Loiseau. Now imagine if that was in France, if yeah. we went on our, on French television and slagged off French, it would be called foreign interference uh, and there would be a national outcry. But also the standard in French media is a lot higher in terms of political representation and debate. And actually the, when you put it together, that yesterday's drive time, it was a pre-recording a good slot for Natalie Loiseau, an MEP, um, pre-recorded in the morning um, because they didn't have the tape of the of the interaction last week in the SEDA committee. You weren't contacted until the afternoon to then send in a comment. Could have done even a pre-recording with you way before or a discussion with you about it before, do you know? So there's just loads of questions about that. And also the whole line of questioning when I was listening to it yesterday, it was just cringy because the lack of knowledge about how things work here um, talking about Nathalie Loiseau she, as if she's some official, <laughs> do you know, like she's actually a politician with yeah. a political agenda who also, as you're saying, supported this attacks in 2018. Um, so it's not like she's uh, detached or some sort of independent authority on this. And then also to go on this whole other random line of questioning and just completely taking it to personality politics. It's really she was asking like asking Natalie about you. I know, which is like so, the, you know, can you imagine if I was asked about the conduct of some other MEP? Yeah. Like the idea that she's an authority on our visit to Iraq uh, or something is just really peculiar. And I believe that at the end of the program they said, "Oh, we were welcome to come on and respond," as if we were like sitting listening to it. We didn't even know it was on until afterwards. Like you know, <laughs> absolute joke. And the idea that you come on and defend yourself afterwards. Yeah. OK, you know, you, you, you're accused of, of, you know, battering your wife. Now you can come on and answer, did you batter her or did you not? I mean, that's the <laughs> essentially uh, what this is is uh, akin to. Right. And, and we should point out, because people have contacted me, that she made comments about me being a supposed feminist who, yeah, exactly. who gave in to them and wore a hijab. Now, this yeah. is a disgusting anti-Islamic um, insult to Irish Muslims who would have been listening to that programme. This individual is a member of Macron's party in France and people should know that recently they accused Marie Le Pen, so the leader of the Front National, of being too soft on Muslims. So this is a far-right, Islamophobic uh, politician yeah. allowed to uh, spew anti-Muslim uh, commentary on RT as yeah, some sort of an authority. She, she called it a middle-aged habit um, a mid from the Middle Ages, which is just quite... Oh, she's insulting me now. <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. quite telling, like, and I, I like to cr question your feminist credentials as well. The criticism of Claire wearing the gear 
in Iraq, it actually exposes their racism. Mm. Um, I mean, what she was doing was um, respecting. It was in the city of Najaf, after religious. That it's 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 probably the the center of Shia uh, on, on the planet, Najaf and Karbala, right? They're, they're close to each other, and I mean, you you're respecting. You're respecting the people of the region by wearing it. You're respecting their religion, right? Yeah. And I mean, and to say, oh, she, oh, she, oh, so much for women's labour, she shouldn't be wearing that. For the Irish media to get up on their high horse and go on that line yeah. just exposes how racist they really are. But you have to laugh, though, as well, at the overnight just knowledge about uh, uh, Iraqi customs and localisms and everything and that saying that you're not supposed to be doing this or well, whatever, as if the Irish population... They obviously don't know anything about Iraq at all, like, because in, in all the other cities in Iraq and where we were on the trip, I wore my normal clothes, but this was a holy city, as Meg said, and, you know, we made the point on the programme that we were uh, delighted to meet one of the Grand Ayatollahs in the city, and, and he was an, an elderly man who has more understanding than the Irish media who kind of said, apologised sort of, or certainly said he understood that it was difficult for somebody from a Western background, but yeah. explained that the tradition lay in their religion with respect for um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it was a respectful thing for women and he really thanked us for um, going along with their customs. And of course, loads of Muslim women are happy to yeah. wear that gear and it's not up to Natalie Loazzo to tell them yeah. what to wear no more than I to give out to some young one for wearing a tracksuit, you know. I mightn't like it, but, you know, it's not my business. Is, is there anything from the Iraq trip that you want to talk about? Because there has been coverage at home about it and lots of people saying lots of things, but is there anything you want yeah, to Yeah, look, address? I mean, uh, no one no one even knows, they don't seem to even understand why we even went, right? But, I mean, we've done a programme on it already. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do it again, right? And we're actually doing a report on uh, Iraq anyway. And uh, I am the rapporteur for Iraq for the whole parliament for this five-year term. And uh, I'm, a, I'm expected to do uh, at least one or two reports during that term. So we've already done a lot of research before we went. We've been researching Iraq now for about nine months, uh, a bit more. And um, we got help from a great guy called Elijah Madnier, uh, who is probably one of the most informed people uh, on Iraq that you could fastly find in terms of politics and religion. I mean, he's, uh, he has an amazing uh, knowledge of the place and lived there for nine years. He's actually from Lebanon. But uh, he's, he's helping us with the report. But now, after our visit, and our, we had so many meetings, uh, it was just, it was really wall-to-wall. Uh, and uh, we're, we're incorporating what we've learned on our, on our week in Iraq into the report. And we will certainly get that report report to anybody anyone that wants to read us there won't be a shortage of copies so yeah, we'll and I mean, we, we've obviously covered it on the podcast before and I believe I mean we haven't listened to the RT programme but they were saying oh we were meeting all these terrorists who've committed these appalling atrocities or whatever which is just absolute nonsense like you know I mean you know, I mean, how many people do the US police force kill every year? Maybe, what, about 3,000? So if somebody, if a politician met somebody from the police force in uh, 
New York and you say, oh, they're meeting, you know what I mean? Terrorists or murderers. It's just a nonsense. Obviously, these people were involved in a military campaign to drive ISIS out. I'm sure they did uh, kill some people as part of that. Sadly, all war and militarism does have consequences, but that's not the same as uh, what was being uh, alleged. Well, uh, and if you want to talk about terrorism, right, in the last 20 years, the Americans have dropped more bombs than all the other countries in the world put together. Mm-hmm. And in this region alone, it's estimated that the Americans are responsible for the deaths of about 2 million people and the displacement of tens of mm-hmm. millions. So they are terrorists Mm. that RTE have no problem with. Do not criticise them. The the lack of balance is an absolute joke. And just just for the record, I actually, when your man, the drive time fella clowned that to me yesterday, just a couple of hours before the programme, I gave him a short quote, right? Because I was was in between committees at the time. And I, I, I sent him the contribution from... Hans von Spanjek and Lawrence Wilkinson from the UN uh, last Friday. And do you know what? Do you know how much of that he used? None of it, because it didn't suit his narrative. And these are two highly respected individuals. Uh, I mean, Spanjek is a veteran UN official. He was the former UN Assistant Secretary General and... He was the humanitarian coordinator for Iraq. And Lawrence Wilkerson is a retired army colonel who served as the chief of staff of Secretary of State Colin Powell. Now, I mean, these are really uh, well-respected figures. And these fellas have challenged the narrative in Duma. And did, uh, did Drive Time use any of that? Absolutely zero of it, from what I heard. As we were going to do France this week, but... We've Natalie played, took up all our time we, we've now. We've kind of overrun. Francis and, uh, Darling. <laughs> we're, we're actually planning on doing two podcasts next week, so we will definitely do France next week. But there's one t- topic that I have to cover this week. People have been on to me to actually talk about it, right? And that is the Super League, right? Um, as everyone on the planet knows, yeah. that there was an effort by 12 of the richest clubs in Europe, six British, three Spanish, three Italian, to start a league of their own and uh, J.P. Morgan were, were backing it up uh, f- with finance. And the whole thing was a sort of an American project where the clubs would actually run the thing themselves, for themselves. And uh, uh, there's, it, it, would, it would mean that they would keep all the money for themselves. Now, listen, right now we have a Champions League, right? And unfortunately, UEFA are rotten to the core and the big clubs already get too much of the money. But they actually weren't happy with all the money they were getting, mm. despite the fact that UEFA have bent over backwards to facilitate them to make sure that they get more and more and more every year. But in actual fact, that, that wasn't enough. And whatever, I mean, there would be a distribution of money raised by UEFA into the underage, for example. Not near enough of it, obviously, but at least there's some. But these guys were actually going to cut off that supply. Now, one of the people who got on to me about uh, and wanted me to talk about this was... Uh, a, a young lad around home that I know very well and his name is Valentin Bali and uh, a great kid and mad into football and he wanted me to talk about this on the podcast. And his, one of the, his first question was, uh, he says, if you're doing France next week, he says, talk about the fact that Paris Saint-Germain weren't part of the top 12 because he was surprised at that. Well, just... I'll get to that in a minute, right? But um, this, anyway, 
this was a power grab. This was a greedy power grab by the top 12 clubs. And Bayern Munich or Dortmund, none of the German clubs said they wanted to be part of it. Now, there's a reason for that. 51% of the ownership of every German club is with the supporters. So, the a corporation or a big company or a rich individual could only have 49. And that's one of the reasons why Germany wasn't going into it. All this was being driven by corporations, right? Public limited companies who are just only focused on making money and couldn't care less about football. And it was really disappointing. And I mean, in fairness, the managers and the players of these clubs uh I'd say the majority of them, definitely, I'd say most of them wouldn't have liked this to happen. And uh, there was a, a, a there was a threat from UEFA that they wouldn't, if this went ahead, they wouldn't be allowed to play in international leagues. They wouldn't be allowed to play in the World Cup. They wouldn't be able to play in the European Championships, right? Because they're all affiliated to UEFA and FIFA, right? So uh, anyway, it all fell down. But to answer Valentin's question... Why did I think Paris Saint-Germain didn't join it? Well, Paris Saint-Germain are owned by Qatar. Paris Saint-Germain is filthy rich with money. It's not about money, it's about sport washing. Right? They are washing the crimes of Qatar over the last number of years. The same as Manchester City have washed the crimes of the UAE. They are both sports washing. And the idea of going into an entity to make more money wasn't really something that Paris Saint-Germain had to do. And I, I was actually even surprised that Manchester City agreed because they really come from the same stable and they're, they were, they're formed on the same thing. It, it was a way of uh, bringing some positivity about UAE who are committing genocide in Yemen, bringing for Paris Saint-Germain, bringing some positivity about Qatar who uh, armed the jihadists in Syria, but then also did the Americans and, and sadly uh, some of the Europeans. Uh, but so really that was uh, at, at the core of it. Uh, but look, at, it's, it's not happening. There was too much opposition. Uh, but you know what? I was just looking at the case in Italy and you had the three richest clubs, Juventus, AC Milan and Inter Milan uh, going to, wanting to go into this Super League. If they had gone, right, you know what? I reckon Serie A would be better without them. As I tell you why. Because they are already creating huge financial inequality. They have too much money. Mm. And they're creating a situation where it's almost impossible for any of the others to win Syria. And you have the same thing in Britain, you have the same thing in Spain. And uh, if these had gone off into their Super League and the Italian Syria functioned without them, we'd have a fairer Syria and a better one. I think I think the importance of this now, and it is appropriate to finish on this note, is that while politics and religion, which we discussed earlier, are important, there is nothing as important as football, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> and how big business tries to corrupt almost everything. So thanks very much to Valentin for his uh, input onto this episode. It managed to knock out our analysis of France overall. Uh, and if anybody else wants to get in com- contact with their comments, but well, we'll so definitely too. do France well, next week. Well, we're doing week. France again I, next well, week. Well, yeah. we've had three special yeah. episodes in between our last country.
country and the next. So Can uh, I just say on France before I forget, the lovely Natalie Loiseau, for a friend of RTE. RTE we're calling Luzo or, or something. RTE's <laughs> friend, <laughs> supposed impartial person. Natalie was the one who at a committee meeting a number of months ago, when one of the French MEPs made the point that the French public were now against French interventionism in the Sahel. And I came in after him and said, I was delighted to hear that the French people were against French. And she uh, tapped at the microphone and said, I would prefer if comments about France were left to French MEPs. Didn't stop her going on RTE, mind you. And I wouldn't mind, but the discussion we were engaged in was on Guyana. And I didn't see any people from Guyana uh, in, involved in the discussion. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We'll deal with the Sahel next week when we're talking but, about oh, France. We have, we have a load coming up because we're also going to do our special episode on the Digital Green Certificate, which, which is this is big thing being voted next week. Absolutely. So there's that. There's our special, um, our next uh, train stop is in uh, Paris for our, our quick tour around the MEPs and from France and then uh, plenty more to come. I think there's a lot on the plate uh, for next week and an interesting plenary ahead. Au revoir. Yeah. Au revoir. <laughs> Or 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 yeah. I may, may learn a bit of French. Oh yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs>